love dogs. I love dogs, too. Glad we're all on the same page. Five, four, three, two, one. Welcome to the Sarah Andreco Show. All right, so today we are talking about one of my all-time favorite subjects, emergency and critical care. And today my guest is Dr. Mariana Pardo. She is a board-certified emergency and critical care specialist and also the mentorship director for Latinx Veterinary Medical Association as well. So lots and lots of awesome stuff on her resume, especially to be talking about emergency and critical care. And today she's here to lend us her expertise and really help other practices kind of up their game with their emergency preparedness and taking care of patients that are in critical care. Welcome, Dr. Pardo. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm really excited to be here. Yes, uh, this is, like I said, one of my favorite subjects, and I get all kind of nostalgic and geek out a little bit. And um, it's almost bittersweet because I really love what I do now, but I miss mm-hmm. ER so much. And it's not one of those <laughs> um, fields where you can just like pop in and do a couple of relief shifts because you really have to be well-practiced and on your game in order to be efficient at your job. So I miss it. So I'm kind of excited to be to be talking ER with you today. Thank you so much. Um, I, I agree. I mean, I can't imagine doing anything but this. If someone told me to choose another specialty, I think I would just have to leave vet med because there's nothing <laughs> else but emergency that that is really a passion for me. You'd end up in, in the human ER at that point, right? Or... <laughs> yeah, might as well, right? <laughs> You're like, oh, well, if you can handle veterinary ER, you can handle anything. I got to say, everything coming in and out. Well, and before we deep di- or dive deep into um, kind of some fun stuff, I'm, I'm really curious, just being in the ER, do you have any special cases or things that you like to see in particular? What, what are your, some of your favorite cases that come in? Oh my God. Well, obviously the sicker, the better for me personally. That's that's really what where I thrive the most. Um, but favorite emergencies, I would have to say trauma is probably one of my favorites. Um, if there's like arterial bleeds and like blood gushing and as messy as possible, those are the ones that 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 I'm really excited about. Um, endocrine problems, um, but like mm. the really bad electrolyte acid-based disturbances. As a criticalist, uh, definitely that's something that I love, especially when um, people are so stumped, they don't know what's going on. And sometimes it's just tiny little tweaks that you need to do and it makes such a difference for the patient. So uh, all those cases that really go from laterally recumbent, not responsive, and that within 20, 30 minutes, you can get them setting up and doing better. I think that those are so gratifying. Um, the staff loves them. The other emergency doctors really feel like they've made a, made a difference in those cases. Yeah, those are fantastic. Nail on the head. I mean, straight down the alley, that is the best part of ER is when you get those cases that you can see that turnaround on. I mean, sometimes it's just so tragic that it's so nice to have those that are just a complete hot mess walking in the door. And then 24 hours later, you're like, wow, you're a, a, a very competent animal at this point. You're interacting with me or back to eating and drinking. It's amazing. So that's great. Absolutely. Um, <clears throat> well, one of the things that I want to address and I would like to talk about if it's all right with you is kind of looking at um, emergency response for private practices. Now, as you know, um, a lot of daytime um, preventive practices are 
open for their own patients during regular business hours for emergencies. Yeah. But obviously it's a little bit different than going to an ER where they're set up for emergencies 24 seven. So I feel like response time is different. Obviously skill level is different. And again, you know, practice with it. it it's not that they're not capable. They're more than capable. It's just that they're not as practiced. So I was kind of hoping that you could provide some insight today on how to help primary care veterinarians prepare better for emergencies that are incoming during business hours? This is such an important topic because how these patients are handled and stabilized at their primary physician before they're referred over can be the difference between life and death for that patient. Sometimes just that transportation of an unstable patient can be enough for that patient to not make it. So there's so many things that a general practitioner can do at their hospital that doesn't mean that they're gonna work up the entire case, that they're gonna stabilize it completely, but that that patient will be in better shape by the time it gets to that ER um, so that the patient has the best chances of survival. So what I think that some of the things that general practitioners should try to do, and this is very simple, is just establish a good relationship with your emergency practice of choice, wherever is close to you, wherever you think that you want to send those patients, because even if you don't know what to do, many times we will. And there are many things that we can tell you what to do before you send them over, whether that is making sure that they have pain medications on board. Um, one of the things regarding pain medications that I think is so important is that to have some type of full mu opioid available. Why is that important? Because many general practitioners have things like buprenorphine or butorphanol, which although they're great for sedation or for long-term pain, they can actually interfere with something like fentanyl or methadone if that patient is really, really painful or might need surgery. So having that discussion with your emergency veterinarian, or at least for us to know what it is that you did, that patient, we prefer them to have pain medications on board before they travel. And if it interacts with what we have, that's okay. We can figure that out or we can have that discussion beforehand with you guys so that we can prep everyone of what is it that we can do as a team. Other things that I think are really important is to assess shock. Shock is probably gonna be the most important reason why these patients end up uh, passing away. So that transportation to get to us, whether that is 10 minutes, which might be great, but might be 30 minutes, might be an hour, it might be in the middle of traffic. So there's so many other reasons of why we want to try to stabilize that patient, get them out of shock before they get to us. So being able to recognize what shock is, I think is super important and understanding that sometimes that's fairly simple for us to get under control, whether it's just placing a simple IV catheter and giving them a bolus before they travel to us, getting that pain medications on board, seeing it, what their blood pressure is and at their hospital, and then shipping them over once you think that those values are a little bit better. So I do think that there are so many things that can be done. The patient is septic. Get them that first dose of antibiotic before they get to us. Those things will make a huge difference for that patient. And again, if you don't know you're concerned and, and you are just freaking out or you're seeing 20,000 things, which happens because general practitioners have such a busy schedule and you just can't think it through, just give us a call. We will let you know what steps can be done or if you've done everything or the patient is stable enough to travel, we'll take care of everything after. That's, that's really great. I don't know that I've ever been present um, at a primary care practice where they've actually called the ER 
with the exception of, hey, we're getting ready to send this to you, but for that advice right there on the spot as here's what we've got going on, this this animal has, you know, this, 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 and this happening, you know, what are your recommendations regarding what we should put on board prior to transportation? So getting that patient stabilized, you know, bringing shock down potentially, and then having them transport after that. So that's fantastic. Yeah, in real time, calling the ER, letting them know what you have, and then taking advice from there if you're intending on sending them over for sure. Yeah, I love that. That's great. Um, And and, and you really are a team. Everybody's working together. And it's one of the things Mm -hmm. that I tell people. um, uh, I'll do a a CPR class with clients every once in a while. And I always tell them, call. So whether you're going to the ER, whether you're going to vet, you need to call ahead so that if you are headed to the ER, at least they can transfer records because, you know, the ER department doesn't necessarily have that history, whereas your primary vet does, but might not be as capable of, of handling whatever it is that's going on. So, yeah, that team communication, I think, really helps, especially in that real time on the spot as you have a patient in front of you that really needs some help and you're going to transfer them anyhow. And a lot of that is with, um, I I know that a lot of clinics will treat right there on the spot and have the ability and have the experience, but oftentimes they're not even open overnight. So they don't have, you know, veterinary staff there, technicians or nurses to provide overnight care for some of these patients that are more critical. So even if they're able to completely stabilize and assess and treat right there, um, they're still looking at some aftercare potentially because of just business hours in general. And I think that this is such, such an important part because, um, that teamwork is so important, especially if those clients do potentially have financial concerns. And we need to work as a team with that general practitioner to see what is it that we need to do to stabilize and make sure this patient's okay. Can we send it back to you guys after to continue managing this? Or do you guys want to keep them during the day and we'll just hospitalize at night and make sure that we continue to stabilize this patient? Or sometimes what you're calling about may not be that urgent because many times you, you, it might not be something that you see all the time, but since we see it, we can tell you actually this actually, we can make an appointment. We can set you up with a specialist, but this isn't something that we need to do right away. These are the steps that you can do right now and we'll get them an appointment in the next couple of days or the next week or so. So that communication between us can end up saving the, the client some money and using those funds for when it's really urgent or for the full workup that this patient might, might require. Um, and just transporting, making them wait, having that discussion of even prognosis. If it's not something that you see all the time, we can tell you, hey, you know what? No matter what we do at this point, this is not gonna be a good prognosis. Maybe you should discuss that with your client, discuss euthanasia. That would probably what we would recommend because many clients don't want to euthanize with their emergency vet that they don't know, that we don't have a relationship with them. Sometimes they want their vet to be there that has treated their pet their entire life. So we can give you that information if we continue to have that communication between us. And I think that's something that the clients find a lot of value, that they really appreciate. They understand that you you really do have their pet's best interest at mind and you're trying to help them as much as possible. I think saving them that additional money in a place where you know the animal is not necessarily familiar with the vet, they're not necessarily familiar with the vet. You guys can be the most wonderful people on the planet, but that familiarity has weight to it and has comfort to it in high times of stress for owners. So excellent point on that yeah even just communication whether you're not transferring too i think is is fantastic that really puts some ownership back to the owner and and makes them feel kind of empowered in a time where they probably feel very very helpless based on kind of what's going on in the situation so i kind of want to bounce back to team um kind of team positions and orientations in a minute but you bring up something that i think is interesting to address too and that's financials you have this financial component to emergencies that 
often is much more than a lot of clients are, are expecting. You know, they come in and they have routine vaccines or they might have a dental cleaning or something like that. But emergency situations tend to hit them kind of unexpectedly in the wallet. And so I'm curious as to how your team typically handles that situation. You have an emergency come flying through the door or you have somebody that if they call ahead of time, obviously you can have those conversations with them ahead of time. But if they just walk into your practice and have an emergency right in front of you and stabilization is your your primary concern, animal welfare is your primary concern, what does your team do as far as handling that financial conversation in that short amount of time? Yeah, so that's probably the hardest part of being an emergency and critical care physician is having those discussions in such a stressful and emotional time for that client because unavoidably they all they hear is that it's all about the money right mm. um so it, it it needs to have a lot of tact and a lot of sensitivity behind having that conversation um, but at the end of the day we need to have it because we kind of know how much we're going to end up spending and we want to be realistic with these owners and make sure that we're not just spending their money if they're if this is potentially a lost cause or something that is going to be a chronic problem long term that they might not be able to afford so normally the first things that we do is that if the patient is unstable usually we will give them like a ballpark this is how much we think we need to stabilize get some initial diagnostics so we can get you an answer i think that's the most important part is to give them as much information so that they can make an educated decision on what they're going to do with their pet moving forward. To me, the most important thing is transparency when it comes to emergency and that client and making sure we tell them what I think that's prognostically is going to be. At the end of the day, it is going to be their decision of what they end up doing with this, this family member of theirs. So we need to give them as much information as we can within the means that they have. And that means that we go through plan A through plan Z. So there's multiple estimates that sometimes are prepared. And to have that discussion of sometimes, I don't know what's wrong with your pet right now. All I know is that it is critical at this point. And these are the tests that I'm gonna need to give you some information and hopefully get to a diagnosis of what's going on. So there's kind of multiple points of me saying, this is how much it is to stabilize this is my diagnostic plan and this is my treatment plan and many times clients will say money's not a concern go ahead do everything sometimes they say that and then when i give them that estimate they're like oh wait hold on maybe maybe i can't afford this because they don't really understand what those costs really are um so that's that's something that client education from the general practitioner's point of view is so important to discuss have a savings account for these issues, invest in that health insurance because it's going to make a difference for those emergency cases and explaining to clients the difference between some of these insurance plans that are just for preventative care versus the ones that are going to be for emergency purpose as well. Um, so there are those insurance companies that are associated to certain hospitals or chains of hospitals that are only for like spays, neuters, vaccines, et cetera, that are not going to cover a hit by car patient. And then just be honest with the owners. If I see them struggling be like, oh my God, I don't know what to do. Like, am I gonna have to put my dog to sleep? As an emergency clinician, we need to be creative. What else can I do for this patient? We're always going to offer gold standard initially, but then what's my plan B? What can I take off of this estimate that I can still get good diagnostics? Maybe not ideal, but I can try to get an answer. And are diagnostics needed? Because although as a 
as being in the medical field, I want to know the answer, but do I need that answer? Can I just make sure that this patient is comfortable and pain-free until it's stable so it can go to his regular vet and then get a full workup there? So I think that there's multiple plans, having that conversation, and sometimes being super honest and being like, look, how much can you work with? How much mm -hmm. can you invest in this right now so that I can come up with some type of estimate for you so that we can both work together and at the end, your patient is going to get the best care that we can. And sometimes it comes down to saying like, even if you had all the money in the world, the prognosis is still bad. So maybe we should take um, another decision at this point. Right. And whether we're going to extend kind of the time that the, the patient has in front of us for a little while so that you can make those hard, difficult decisions, you know, kind of make them as comfortable as possible in the meantime to give you time to process that. But yeah, ultimately, what are the, what are the best decisions just financially and for the patient to begin with? Mm -hmm. You know, I like what you're talking about in regard to insurance as well. And with um, primary care physicians, they see lots of, you know, puppies and preventive stuff. And those are, I feel like puppy visits, kitten visits, things like that are always the perfect time to have those conversations, you know, preparing for emergencies. You know, I always think, I think it's the ER and me too. I'm always like, what's the worst thing that could happen? What is the worst consequence? You know, um, but that, I think that's a really opportune time to have those conversations is when you are seeing them in hospital as a very healthy animal or a new puppy or a new client saying, Hey, do you have insurance? Do you have a savings account set aside for emergency situations in the event that something does happen? And I think just yeah. having that conversation with the client up front is it, it, it sets such a different tone later on down the road when you come rushing in the hospital with an emergency and your vet says, we're looking at 1500 bucks right off the bat just to start. And you can think back and say, oh yes, they told me, like if I, I think about this ahead of time, I save ahead of time, I prepare for this. They're really gonna appreciate that, I think in the moment more than anything else that you've prepared them in a sense. Absolutely. And we, we see it all the time too, with especially certain breeds. So if I'll see, I don't know, a brachycephalic dog, I'll see a pug ah. for an eye problem. I'll immediately be like, so you do understand that your dog has a propensity to have breathing issues. Maybe you should consider investing in, in insurance. Yeah. We do the same with large breed dogs with like GDBs. Maybe you should talk to your vet about doing a Pexi. We do talk to like Labradors and Golden Retrievers. Like, look, as they get older, abdominal ultrasounds might be good for you to be having because they can develop splenic tumors. So dachshunds and back. So we, it's part of the ER's uh, mission as well is to try to educate these patients and the, the clients and let them know like, look, your breed specific problems are maybe they'll never happen. But if it does, you see how much we're spending right now. If that happens, this is going to be exponentially more. And it's something that we can prepare for because the chances that this will happen are probably fairly high. Well, and that's an excellent conversation. I mean, if you think about people that go out and purchase their dogs from a breeder or rescue from a shelter, you know, in, on the behavior side of things, one of the biggest problems that we face is that they, they don't research their breeds ahead of time as far as behaviors. Is this the right kind of dog for your environment, for your, your activity level? So to think that they also, on top of that, are going to understand some of the breed-specific emergencies that can arise in the future. I mean, even heat stroke, things like that, dogs that are more yeah. prone to that. Um, yeah, so I think that that's a really good point is those common conversations that you don't even think to have because we assume people are doing their research. Well, they might not know that 
their dog is prone to GDV because they're a Great Dane or an Irish Wolfhound or something like that. So yeah, I think that that preparation is is everything. Prevention is key and planning. Mm -hmm. Um, So speaking of planning too, um, the one thing that we used to do in one of the clinics that I worked with, and we only did it in one, and I wish we did this everywhere because I thought it was such a great idea, was practice. So in the event that an emergency comes into private practice, this isn't something you do every day, all day, like you would in an ER. So oftentimes it's kind of like, uh, like who's getting the oxygen, who's going to intubate, who's grabbing the stat cart, you know, where is the doctor and what is everyone's role when it comes to what to do and how to respond, especially those emergencies that you don't get the heads up on. I think those are the most surprising. And the thing that I loved about the clinic that I worked for, and this was many, many years ago, is that we never got a heads up that they were going to run this drill. So it would be like, stat coming back, you know, and we're like, wait a minute, is that real or is that a drill? And then be like, it's a drill, but go. <laughs> so um, what are what are some tips that you have as far as preparation is concerned for helping um, you know, normal businesses during regular hours prepare for things coming back so that people aren't scrambling. Who is doing this? Who is doing what? How do those people kind of fall into those positions that you think would be kind of the best arrangement to help them be more successful? That is a great point. So personally, I love simulation training. I think that um, especially because they're, they're, they're low risk, right? So you can, if you do these appropriately, like, like you were explaining at the hospital that you were at, the people are not going to be that stressed knowing that, oh my God, a patient might die because of this, but they can definitely think on the spot of what should be done for that patient. And there can be a debriefing after of like, okay, what worked, what didn't work. One of the things that I think is important is to always debrief these situations. So any emergency that comes in after have that discussion with your team, okay, what worked and what didn't, maybe we need to have another laryngoscope closer to this initial area instead of only in the OR because we needed to intubate this patient over here. Um, Maybe we need to uh, organize the system a little bit better. Maybe in the beginning of the day, we need to say if an emergency comes in, who's going to be in charge, or is there going to be just a leader that's going to assign roles once things come in and that leader doesn't necessarily need to be a doctor especially in general practice when sometimes there's just one doctor running around they might be in the middle of surgery or in an appointment or doing something else someone else needs to be in charge of doing that until that doctor gets there so i think being a leader doesn't necessarily require that dvm um, but it just needs to be someone that is comfortable that um, is open to suggestions so one of the most important things that I try to teach is that an emergency is not the, the moment to have a big ego. You need to make sure that yes. you're listening to everyone around you. You need to be open for criticism. And this is super important in things like CPR. If I'm not doing compressions right, the only one that's going to suffer is that patient. Someone needs to correct me right away. And I can't be like, oh, no, this is how I was taught. No, no, no. You just take that um, feedback as quickly as possible and just reroute your course and continue and there should be good communication between that team at all times so that everyone on that team no matter what your role is from doctor to assistant everyone feels comfortable voicing what's going on and mentioning hey did we remember that this patient that looks laterally recumbent just got a big dose of opioids maybe we need to reverse that so just remembering and what problems might be happening or if you're seeing something that maybe is not being done appropriately not necessarily criticize, but just voice those things because it might trigger in someone's memory what needs to be done next or is maybe it is a, a good idea no matter from who it's coming from. One of the things that I really like is using my crash cart not just for CPR. 
So in my crash cart, most crash carts are going to have several levels, right? So my first level, of course, I'm going to have my CPR drugs, epinephrine, atropine, but I have it stocked with everything else that I might need in an emergency. For example, I have albuterol in case I have a cat with a crisis for with asthma or a hyperkalemic cat that has um, that's blocked. I can give it a couple of puffs of albuterol to bring down that potassium before I place that IV catheter. I have furosemide in there. I have some uh, levetiracetam in there. I have uh, calcium in case I need to do that. So I have a variety of things that are emergency drugs for me that I might need to rush and get them all in one place and obviously i don't have a large stock of them in there but i have like lidocaine in case the patient comes in with btac um, so there's a variety of other things that i have make sure that my second level is ready for synthesis so if i need to do an emergency um, thoracocentesis pericardial synthesis abdominal synthesis everything is in one area and i have tubes obviously ready i have a laryngoscope that belongs in the crash cart and does not leave the crash cart um, I make sure that I have like a tiny little CO2 monitor in case I need to. Um, I don't worry about like an SpO2 or other things that are really not necessary in that place. And another great tip that I really love are these muzzles that connect to oxygen because it kind oh. of relieves an extra hand. Um, I don't know what they're called, but um, I, I'm sure that I can get you the name. I don't know about these. Attach it to the yeah. podcast. They're blue, they're a muzzle, and then the tip of it attaches to your oxygen line. So especially if you don't have a lot of staff to have someone holding on to like a mask in front of the patient or that typical patient that keeps like moving his head away from the oxygen, <laughs> put a muzzle on it, put some oxygen, and then you have one extra hand to do everything else that's going on. Um, so all of those little tips, I think that just having one place where everything that potentially could be an emergency is going to be dealt with. So you don't have people running around the hospital trying to get different things from different places. Um, and obviously not using that for anything else but an emergency because we want to make sure that it's stocked appropriately. And it doesn't mean that you need a large amount of things, but it's going to be your go-to place. An emergency comes in, most hospitals are going to have like that first table near that entrance where they're going to be managed. Have a multi-parameter monitor there, have your crash cart ready. That's the place that you're going to stabilize that patient. Yeah, that's great. Um, and I and I can tell you, I've been in this situation myself as, you know, early in my career when I was a veterinary assistant, and then I went on to be a veterinary nurse where, where's the laryngoscope? I can't find the right size too, because it's, it, there's not enough stock that is there specifically for emergencies because they're rare, they're few and far between, and everything else is either in dental or in surgery or being cleaned, you know, that kind of thing. So you bring up a really good point. The last thing you want to do is be scrambling around the hospital trying to find who used what last. And so I like that you bring that up. Have designated tools for your crash cart that stay in there. Um, yeah, I've been I've been to several different hospitals that literally have a bottle of epi and a bottle of atropine in there, and that's that's it as far as drugs go. And it's it's a it's a scramble to get everything pulled up. And I think that's a lot of pressure on the doctor as well, especially if there's only one doctor that is you know actively practicing at at any given point in time in a particular practice. That's a lot. You know, they've got to figure out what's going on with the patient based on who's calling what out and what you know what they're seeing sign and symptoms wise. 
if there's any history to let us know what happened to begin with, with it coming in the door, you know, we saw it get hit by a car or we saw it collapse after being out in the hot sun for, you know, an hour, that kind of thing, if there's that background. So now they have to not only diagnose and be DVM, but then they have to go rush and pull out drugs and have access to that and calculate and everything else. So I think that's a lot of pressure. I think preparation is so important. Um, and then, so touching base on roles a little bit too. And one of the things that when I went through early ER training was if you don't know what to do, right. <laughs> so for the newest person in, in, in the, the kind of whirlwind of everything going down is pick up a, a pen and a pad and be the person that records that says what was given, when it was given, what the vitals are as they're being called out by whatever nurse or technician is, is checking those things, you know, where the catheter was placed, what size it was, because as you mentioned before, um, there is a lot going on and the best way to understand everything inclusive of what's happening with the patient is to be very verbal about that. And obviously not over talking or taking up space, but, um, you know, when the person gets a temperature, you know, 101.9 and, you know, I've got this and, and you know, here's, here's, I've got a catheter's place and we're ready to go for drugs. Like just calling things out, you know, what is our pulse? Is it thready? Is it weak? You know, just having that information recorded, um, and, not just from a record keeping perspective for that patient in that very moment, but then also there's that liability factor that kind of creeps up too, where you have very distressed family members if things don't always go well or, or expected from the family's perspective that you covered all of your bases and you have everything recorded. So I always thought that to be one of the more important roles, even though it's something that really anyone can do. And if you don't know what to do, I think the best thing you can do is just grab a pen and paper and be like, I'm writing, I'm recording, you know, you're completely right. So I'm, I'm also a recover instructor and I tell people that are recording all the time that to me, their role with the person that's doing compressions are the most important part because especially in emergency, there's so many things happening at the same time. You don't really know, especially if there's multiple doctors or, um, multiple, like very competent technicians that are trying to take care of, of this patient, things might be duplicated, or we might assume that someone else is doing something and it doesn't get done. So having that person that just focuses on, I'm going to record and I'm just going to say out loud, like, Hey, we, we did do this. We already placed a catheter or, Hey, what size catheter duty place? And write that down. We gave, I don't know, um, Lasix, how much did we give? And so that especially if there's a lot of people, if someone comes into the situation a little bit later, they can be updated. Say, okay, what have we done so far? Where are we? Did we give this drug or not? How much of that drug did we give? If that person that's recording can say like, actually, we didn't give it, it was mentioned, but we didn't get to it. Okay, great. Let's go ahead and do that. So that person that's recording is essential to make sure that the team is still doing everything that should be done verifying was it done or not. If I scream out, hey, I need two mix per cake of lidocaine right now for this dog in VTAC, and no one mentions anything else, the recorder can definitely be like, hey, did, did we give that drug? Like, was it given or not? So that closed loop communication is also crucial of making sure if I give um, an order, that it's an order that is very clear and concise. It's with the name of someone. There is, We know that there is either some verbal confirmation that they heard me, or there is some eye contact that that person knows that I'm telling them to do something. And then they go back and say, okay, it was done. I gave this IV drug at this point. Um, that is gonna make sure that those medical errors don't occur and that we're working as quickly as we can so that we don't delay treatment for these patients. 
Yeah, I like that a lot. And what you mentioned in regard to that person and the person doing compressions, what do you think about tying that role into counting as well? And I, I, it, this used to be the case, it's the same way for human CPR as well, that two minutes is really your max. You need to switch out at two minutes, no matter how good you think you are, how strong you think you are. Um, so if that's still the case, it's still, still our two minute mark. I, I feel like that's a role too that can say, okay, you, you've got 10 seconds, nine, okay, switch, you know, that kind of thing. What do you think about Absolutely. that person playing that? Yeah. So that's, yeah. that's how I use my recorders. My recorder, especially in the case of a CPR, that's the person that's going to have, and I have all of this set up in case of CPR, there, there needs to be a clipboard with some, with some type of sheet. And the recovery initiative does have some sheets that are, are free for you to get online if you are interested in getting them. Um, but any type of sheet, whatever works for you of just recording what it is that is happening, the time a timer clipped onto that clipboard that they can use for those two minutes. Make sure there's a pen attached to it, whether you get those little sticky ones that you, you can't come off or you make sure that that pen is not is untouchable. You, if you don't have a pen, you find someone that is not the one that is on the clipboard for CPR <laughs> and have that person constantly be saying, okay, we have 15 seconds. Um, right, who's going to be the next person that, that's going to do compressions? Are we ready? Um, and making sure that they are following up. What are those drugs? What was the rhythm that we saw on the ECG? Mentioning, hey, it's been um, 10 minutes at this point just so that everyone knows, like, are we going to continue? Have we talked to the owner? What's going on next? Uh, making sure that we that they're on top of things like we should be giving drugs every other uh, round. So if someone calls out, okay, let's give Epi that they can say, actually, we just gave Epi this last round. Perfect. Great. So they should be on top of that, not being in charge of anything else, but recording. Because in itself, there's so many things that are happening that that's a big job that they need to be paying attention to everything that's happening. And to me, it is such an important job. A lot of people gravitate to be the recorder because they might be scared of doing the other stuff. Mm -hmm. But it is super <laughs> important to be that person because you have eyes a little bit farther back of what's going on. And you can make sure that everyone is doing their job appropriately. So I think that that is super, super important to do. And uh, people underestimate that role. I agree. And it's funny you mentioned about being afraid to do anything else. I feel like you have two extremes in emergency situations. You have your gung-ho type A, you know, technician personalities. They're like, I can do everything and I'm in and this is what I'm doing. And then you have everybody else that's like, I'm just going to fall back and maybe take temperature or record or see what's not being done. I almost feel like there's no middle ground where it's like, well, I'm good with this, but not with this. So maybe I'll just, um, and I think kind of knowing your expertise and knowing your practice and knowing where you are in training is really helpful into what role gets designated. And, and sometimes, I mean, because in, in the emergency room, for the most part, your technicians can rotate through pretty much everything. All your technicians can intubate, all your technicians can do chest compressions, all your technicians can do a cut down. You know, you've got, they, they have all those skills on board, but that's not the case, you know, during, during regular business hours at a primary care practice. So if you have a lead technician on board that has emergency experience, most likely they're probably going to do, you know, they're, they're more likely to go straight for venous access, especially if your blood pressure is like non-existent, you know, things like that. Whereas your, you know, your surgery tech or your dental tech might be the one that intubates. You're not going to have your doctor intubating because they, you know, hardly ever intubate. They maybe intubate once a year. So just knowing kind of who fits where and putting your strongest person for that position in that position um, and I think that's part of the preparation really too, is as being vocal about that during training and being open about it. Okay. What are our strong suits and does the team need more practice in different areas? Do we need to invest in some of that education and that experience and that skill? But in the meantime, 
who does what so that you don't have um, some of your people that aren't that kind of go-getter, balls to the balls, bulldogs, so to speak. You know, what do they do? Because everybody has a role. Everybody fits in and everybody can help. It's just a matter of where those people, you know, fit best for that patient at that particular time. Absolutely. And I definitely think that those are good instances too, um, as whoever's the leader of what's happening or being the doctor on the team is making sure that you have people trying to start rotating through some of these jobs. If someone is always, always, always the person that's just going to be breathing for the patient, just push them out of their comfort zone. Okay, no. Well, now we're going to switch you out. You you need to do compressions and monitor those give them some feedback, always make sure they're giving positive feedback to people because it's scary. And I I get that people don't like to leave their comfort zone, but trying to be positive about it. Okay, we want you to push you to do this. And still people will always have a strong suit, right? Even if you try to do everything, but we want to try to push people because you never know when that lead technician might be out on leave or they needed to leave early for their day. So we need to make sure that there's enough people that know how to do things and that they start feeling comfortable. We also can't expect someone to criticize something and try to give you feedback on how to do it better if they don't know how to do it themselves. So we want every member of the team to feel confident, competent, and be able to have a voice that we're really going to hear within that team. Definitely. I mean, and I also think about situations to where, kind of like you said with the lead technician, you know, leaving early for the day. What if you're closing down for the evening and you have one receptionist and you've got one tech in the back and one doctor, you know, now, now you, you have to, you don't have a choice because this patient isn't going to make it to the R your client came to you and now you have to step into that role. And if you aren't practiced, that can be even more traumatizing to the person, which is going to decrease their skill ability, even from the level where they have it potentially. So I think that that preparation is so important. And I, and I agree, like switching up those roles and, and helping people get practice and, just with how busy clinics are from day to day, especially with all the all the stuff going on with COVID right now, I think oftentimes training like that kind of gets pushed back by the wayside because you deal with it so infrequently that you kind of forget how helpful and how beneficial it is to be like, let's just run through this. Let's just take an hour today or 20 minutes today and let's just talk about it. Let's just see you know, what other skills we can develop and then we can plan some time over the next two weeks and go ahead and schedule it and just get you practiced and get you, get you, you know, to up your, your skill level a little bit so that we can benefit the team and we can lift the team up as a whole. I think that's so really important. And trying to incorporate those things into stable patients. So for example, in CPR, we are always going to be intubating patients and lateral recumbency, right? So if Mm -hmm. you have a stable um, spay that you're going to do, why don't you intubate it in lateral? Try to practice those on a stable patient. You don't need to rush and learn how to do it when the patient's dying, but you can try to practice that in patients when they are completely stable, under control, with very minimal risks. If you're struggling to place a catheter and the patient is is sedated, why don't you do a cut down? That is a good moment for you to practice that when hormones aren't rushing, the adrenaline is not at full, you're trying to place this and you're like, oh, I don't know how to do it and and that's it. (laughs) So try to guide those situations when you have a stable patient. Practice in those patients that it's not gonna, this isn't something that is um, unethical because it's still just another technique of how to do the same thing, which is place a catheter or place an endotracheal tube Um, place a bandage in a certain way, et cetera. So there definitely are things that we can make sure that your team is starting to practice because if you intubate all of your patients in lateral that are stable going in for a wound repair or a neuter or a spay, 
when it comes the moment that you really need that the patient is dying, they've got this down. They know how to do it because they do it all the time. That is an excellent point. Yeah, I, I, and I often don't think about the things that you can do when you aren't in the heat of the moment and don't need that. And I think, too, what I love about that is from a psychological standpoint, just from the, the person that is in, that, in those shoes of learning, you know, often it can be intimidating to learn new things in the field, especially when you're going to be using it in an emergency situation because, you know, your adrenaline's going to be pumping, your heart rate's going to be through the roof. But often there's that side of it, too, to where everybody's yelling, like, I don't know if you guys have a nice quiet ER, but I've never worked in a nice quiet ER. No. Everybody's <laughs> yelling. And it's not because anybody's mad or anything's going on, but that's how you, you communicate. This is what I need. Pull up this. I want this drug given. You know, what's our heart rate? Do we have a vein? You know, do we have a vein? And, and so for someone that um, isn't used to that, it can be really intimidating. And, it, and they can, I feel like I've seen, you know, assistants that are new and, you know, rising technicians that almost take it personally. Like, why is everybody screaming at me and what's going on? And so I like the idea of giving them that practice where there's not all of that going on on top of them trying to learn in the moment or being pushed into a position that might intimidate them anyway. And now you got everybody yelling. <laughs> you know, so it just kind of creeps up from a psychological standpoint. And, and you know, that can, I think that can be really hard on people. So good point. Yeah, intubating in lateral recumbency, um, more difficult cases, you know, cats, smaller animals, you know, kittens, mm -hmm. things like that, I think are really important to practice on too. I mean, how many of those do you get in on emergency where you, you know, you have to, you have to do something that's a little outside of your comfort zone. You know, most of your dogs or your cats that are coming in have pretty normal sized trachea. <laughs> so doing things that are a little outside of the box as well. For yeah. Practice. When it, when it, when it comes to training, like I, I love to teach and, um, I'm, Const obviously I'm a critical, so I'm constantly thinking of like pathophysiology and stuff. And I feel like one of the best ways that I can teach is that everything that I'm thinking about the patient, I am talking out loud. Yes. So as, as things are happening, people around me can hear things out. So I'm constantly explaining things of like, well, this is why I'm doing this. This is why I think this is going on. This is why I want you to give this drug first instead of this. And I am constantly treating my staff as if they were all my interns at all times. So I quiz them constantly. If I round in the morning with patients, I'm like, okay, well, why did we decide to give this drug? Oh, the doctor told me that's not a good enough answer. Mm -hmm. Why do you think we need this? What is the mechanism of action of this drug? What are the interactions of this drug? Can we put both of these drugs together? Or if I see a medical error, I have them think it through. Like why, instead of me saying like, this is wrong, just change it why is this wrong what's going on i need their eyes i need them to alert me if something's wrong with that patient i don't want people that are just following orders i want people that can think and that can advocate for their patient and the best way that i can do that is try to pass all of my knowledge on to them so that they can then tell me what's going on and they can double check me because sometimes we are doing a million patients at the same time i might forget something and i need them to be like hey I've noticed that for your DKAs, you always do this. You didn't do it for this one. Are you sure you don't want to do that? I'm never going to feel offended if someone comes up to me and questions what I am doing, as long as they're kind about it, obviously. Right. <laughs> but I want them to because maybe I forgot or maybe I didn't want to do it because of something specific and then I can teach that person. No, I don't want to do KFOS in this patient because 
phosphorus is actually normal. Let me show you the blood work. Make sure that you're treating your team as someone that is part of your team. They're not just working for you. They're not just someone that is there to take orders because that's not useful to me. I need to have someone that can identify when something's wrong very quickly in those patients and do something about it. If I'm not there, they know what I would do until I can get there and try to fix it. Um, someone that's supervising my own job, is this dose that I wrote reasonable or am I just really sleepy because I haven't slept in three days? Right. Like, hey, doc, doc, Dr. Pardo, are you sure you want to give 30 mix per keg of Batril? Maybe you meant unison. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's exactly what I wanted. Thank God for you because this patient would be dead if, if, if not. So I, I try to develop that relationship with my staff that we do have different roles, but there really isn't a hierarchy for me. We are a team, me and my technicians, my assistants, my emergency doctors, we are all on the same level. We just have different things to contribute to this team. I, I cannot accentuate this point enough. Like, I love that you're saying that. And I think that um, all of these, you know, eager people en entering the practice that want to become the best technician that they can possibly be, the best nurse they can possibly be, maybe they want to go into specialty, they want to soak up as much information as possible and really be an efficient member of that team. And just to have a doctor rattling off the information that they know and giving the why behind what's happening just not only satiates that, but makes them such a better team player and team member as well. And I think that's rare. I do. I have to say that just in my experience, um, the only place that I've experienced the same thing that you do for your team is in a university setting. So, you know, I worked in the ER at NC State and I felt that the doctors were very inclusive there. Um, everybody was mean to the poor interns, <laughs> but... They were very inclusive and they did say what they were doing and why they were doing it. And they cared about us being adequate members of that team. They didn't want to fail. They didn't want us to fail. And so they were very vocal about what was going on and why. And they did lean on their team. But I, I mean, outside of a university setting, I've, I've not come across other doctors. Now, mind you, I haven't, I don't think I've actually worked at a, um, another facility, even an emergency facility with a, a board certified, um, emergency care and criticalist, but um, you don't see that often. And I do think that, you know, ego can play a role a bit. Like, I know what I'm doing. Don't question me. These are my orders. Just do it. This is how ER is. Like, boom, boom, boom. And so you're missing out on those people that want to learn, that could really benefit your team, that can help you catch those mistakes when you've done, you know, seven days on and <laughs> you're getting ready for that seven day off. Um, so I, I love that you bring that point up and I really hope that more people kind of take on that mentality that you really can rely on your team and, and the more they know, the better off you are in your own practice. I would love to see that spread more. And I think that it's not, it doesn't come natural to everyone to want to teach, right? I mean, that's, that's a, a personal interest, but the way that I think that you can promote that is that if you're on the flip side, if you're that assistant, that, that extern, that technician, that receptionist, ask the questions and be mindful of like, if your doctor's in the middle of an emergency, maybe that's not the moment <laughs> to do that. <laughs> so just read the audience, but uh, well, I tried to, to learn, <laughs> but in the middle of compressions, they hushed me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah go, go back and, and ask them like, hey, why, why did we do that? Um, and 
there's a lot of egos in, in not just specialty medicine. It's just human nature sometimes right. to be that way. Um, but just, just be cautious of just not trying to seem challenging. And I've, I've gone through this my entire life of being criticized because people think that I'm challenging them. And I learn a lot by asking questions. I'm not trying to challenge your decision. It's just that that's how I learn. So I need to know why did he do that? And why did he do it different? Because I've seen someone else do it another way. Why is it this way or not? What is the evidence behind that? And there's so many ways that you can start, you can start training your doctor to teach you of just asking those little questions. And maybe they'll slowly start being like, oh, this person just likes it when I tell them why I'm doing things and they'll slowly start talking to you. Or maybe they're not great teachers because not everyone is. Ask them for a reference. Hey, I really like that technique or whatever it is that you did. Where can I find more information on that? And you can take a lead as a technician or assistant of starting to spread the knowledge that you have as well. I think that people that retain their information and they don't want to share it very much, the only thing that they're doing is is making their whole team weaker and the patient ends up affected. In general, I feel like people end up respecting you more, not based on fear, but based on really connecting with you and having that shared experience and that bond. Yeah. And that, um, actually brings me to my next question, which I think you can help greatly with. So for, um, veterinary staff that whether they're veterinarians or whether they are veterinary technicians, nurses, whatever the case may be, what are some of your favorite go-tos as far as improving their skill, that their technique, what's some of your favorite continuing education that they can participate in to kind of up their own game? If that's something that they're really interested in. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things that I really like to do is have wet labs for them. So I try to uh, do a couple wet labs a year. And usually there's a couple of ways to do this. There are some simulation mannequins that are available. Um, They can be a little bit more expensive and all of the pieces that need to be changed can end up being pricey. But there are other ways that we can try to do that. So if a patient is going to be euthanized and they want to just do group cremation and they don't want ashes returned, they don't want to take them. Sometimes I ask them, like, would you consider um, donating their body for science? Many, many clients will actually be very happy to do that because they'll feel that someone will learn from that pet. So sometimes if I have a, a wet lab that's being planned, I'll try to take this pet. One of the important things, as corny as this might be, every time I start a wet lab with um, a cadaver, I always take a moment to thank that pet for being there for us and um, allowing us to learn from, from that body because we still need to be respectful of that cadaver no matter what. But when I do have these these bodies, I try to do as much teaching that I can from them. So let's learn how to place IO catheters and central lines, NG tubes, oxygen lines, um, cut downs, um, anything that they want to think of and do. And this includes my technicians. Let's do an abdominocentesis, do a cystocentesis. Um, I'll pump their air with uh, their 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 chest with air so that they can do a um, thoracocentesis and and feel what it's like. Let's do uh, whatever it might be. Let's learn how to place a bandage on on these patients. So I really tried to do the maximum with this body, um, with these technicians a couple times a year so that they can tell me, hey, we're kind of weak on this or we would like to start placing central lines for our, I don't know, our our DKAs. Um, Let's start doing that. Great. Let's start doing that. But we need to practice on on 
first a cadaver and do that. And then other CEs, it's, it's so dependent because people learn in different ways, right? I'm a very hands-on learner. I need to do things so that I can learn. But some people are really yeah. good at reading and they pick up on that. Some people like podcasts. Some people like to go to a conference. Um, if you, there's something specific that you like, you can always try to set up an externship somewhere. If you really like, I don't know, ophthalmology, but you work in a general practitioner, but you notice that a lot of your clients come in with, I don't know, corneal ulcers, you can maybe ask the ophthalmologist nearby, would it be okay if I come and shadow you for a couple of days so I can learn some of these techniques? I guarantee many, many specialists will be happy to have you, both doctors or technicians, to try to help you out and improve your skills. Um, so it really depends on you honing in on how do you learn best and then trying to choose something from that. Because there's so many great resources out there. There is Vet Girl, there's the Recover Initiative, which in, in my previous hospital, I made it mandatory that everyone, every technician and assistant, receptionist and emergency doctor and intern needed to be Recover certified because I need all of them to jump in at any point. Um, but there is so much other CE having access to VIN, um, going on to webinars. So it really depends on how you learn. So it's fun for you because if it's not fun for you, you're never going to pick up the information that you need. So like I said, to me, it's hands-on and I try to make those events happen because that's how I learn. I learn a lot by teaching, which is why I'm constantly saying out loud the things that I'm saying. So it's like cements in my brain. Um, and I make it a point to like, if there's something that I don't know, someone asks me something, okay, well, let's, let's look that up and get back with an answer and also push them. Don't just be the person that just wants information to be delivered to you research it so many times someone will ask me something like well you go look it up and now you need to get back to me and tell me how that works give me an answer on that <laughs> yeah which also works great when i don't know the answer because that way they can do the research <laughs> and get back to me win-win <laughs> yeah absolutely well, that you know that sparks an idea you know i was thinking about um you know, with, with your doing wet labs a couple times a year, I, I think a lot of people in this role are hands-on learners as well. Um, and some of those things you just have to learn by feel, like you have to actually feel it the first several times that you do it to really get practice. A lot of it is by feel. Um, but I was thinking, so, uh, one of the other hospitals I used to work with, we did, we had a partnership with the animal care and control facility. And most people don't like this part of it either, but you know, they do euthanize for space. It's going to happen. They, they can't say no to incoming animals, so they don't have a choice, and, the, and, and animals are going to end up euthanized. Um, so we would, a few times a year, do the same thing to where we would partner with the animal shelter and take a certain number of bodies from them of various different sizes and species, um, or really only two species, I guess, but and then um, host those wet labs as well so that technicians could practice and really hone in on those skills. And I almost wonder if that's something that you could do from a private practice perspective to where, you know, everyone has a local animal care and control facility. You know, there, some of them are no kill, but most of the municipal shelters do euthanize, whether for behavior or medical or age or space or whatever the case may be. Um, and then even looking at just hiring or bringing in an emergency technician or an intern or, you know, somebody that can come in and do that teaching part mm -hmm. for you. If teaching isn't your jam, you don't like to talk, you don't like to explain things. You just like to do your job, you know, as the, as a DVM or even a lead tech, um, you know, your stuff, but maybe talking about it is not your forte. I ran into a lot of professors in college that I'm like, you're here for research because you're amazing and you're brilliant, yeah. but you're terrible at teaching me this. So, Absolutely. um, maybe even... 
hiring somebody to come in and having that partnership with an animal care control mm-hmm. and saying, okay, here's our list of things based on what the staff wants to learn or how we need to up our skills. And we're going to set up our practice day and have somebody that knows what they're doing and does this pretty routinely help us through some of these things. I think that would be great. Yeah. I mean, many, many referral practices, um, get requests to do, um, either some type of CE or a lab or something along the line. So most places are going to be available to do that. You just need to ask for what it is that you need. Other things that I think are uh, good ways to make sure that the team maintains engagement with CE is obviously as an employer, you need to provide the funds to make sure that mm. you're paying CE for your staff. Um, you can force them to learn if they're doing this on their dime, especially nurses that um, we all know are not always well paid. So that needs to be something that needs to be done. And then follow up, make sure that this is mandatory. They need to do some type of CE every year. And um, in some of the places I've worked, then once they go to a conference, great, we will pay for your conference, but now you need to come back and do a presentation. Yes. And if you if you don't like to present, which is fine, then you need to write out a summary of what it is that you learned uh, for everyone. So usually we would do that as some type of uh, monthly technician meeting or something along the line. It doesn't need to be long, 20, 30 minute presentation of key things that they learned, I don't know, at IVEX um, and bring that back in something that's practical or that you really thought, wow, we do this a lot. And now I understood this concept. Share that with everyone else that is there. Um, try to keep them up to date with other things. If you go to a conference, present to your staff as well. Or again, ask your your local specialist, hey, would you mind coming in and doing a presentation, I don't know, on uh, pancreatitis for us? Absolutely. I'm sure that they would be happy to do those types of things. Um, I had some technicians tell me that they were uh, confused with some of these interaction charts, right? So I said, you know what, let's do this. Um, Now everyone gets homework. And I gave every single technician and assistant in the hospital a drug that they needed to research. So they needed to research how the drug worked, for what route they needed to give it, what were the concentrations, how we needed to dilute it, and what were the interactions. And we created an entire binder on interactions that everyone was involved in. At the bottom of each sheet, it said who made it so that they could feel proud that they had contributed to this. Um, And then instead of going to Plums, they would go to their little book because they knew exactly what was in there. As new drugs came out or a new person was hired, we would give them a new drug. This is just part of what we do. So you can integrate CE into your practice with tiny little things and keep them engaged. Create a culture that shows that we are constantly learning and improving and medicine changes constantly. Before we used to think that, I don't know, steroids were good for head trauma. We know that's no longer the case. Things are constantly changing. So if we don't keep up to date, we're going to be stuck at a point that we're not doing the best medicine that we can. Definitely. And you're more likely to, you know, kind of fall behind with different modern technologies and, and again, some of those newer surfacing drugs that, um, or even just some of those changes. And, you know, that, that, that brings a question to mind too. Do you feel like there are some common mistakes or some outdated practices that you still see or still hear about that you think just need to die? <laughs> oh my God. There's like so many. There's, <laughs> um, so um, I have a social media where, where I, I try to teach as much as I can. And I recently did an entire post on Metronidazole because it's I so overused. Yes. It's so overused. And that post blew up because one, there was all these people that were like, yes, someone said this. And then all these people was like, oh my God, I had no idea. Um, but 
yes, there's so many things between drugs, techniques, uh, treatment plans. Um, there, the, the list is just so long that there is, it's, it's impossible to start. Some of my biggest soapbox moments say, give are me some probably. Favorites. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so definitely Metro. Let's not overuse it. It's not that I hate the drugs. It's just it should be used for certain situations. Famotidine. Oh, my God. I have such an mm-hmm. issue with this drug. It just doesn't work <laughs> in dogs and cats. There's like so much evidence about it. Let's please stop using famotidine in animals. We need to use proton pump inhibitors. There, the evidence is there. There's like 20 papers. It's probably going to be a post coming up soon because it's such an issue. Um, colloids, head of starch, vet starch, don't use them. It's it just it it doesn't really increase the blood pressure more than any other fluid therapy. Um, it produces acute kidney injury. It affects coagulation and makes them bleed more. Uh, there's increased mortality with them. Just just stop. Just don't use them. Use pressors. They're not that scary. They start working right away, and then they go away when you stop the CRI. So it's not as scary as people think. Um, you don't need to have all the pressors in the world, but maybe just have some norepi if you are doing intense surgeries and you are doing, I don't know, enterotomies or things like that. Just have one bottle around in case you need it because um, sometimes they need it for a short term. So there are so many things that can be done in your hospital to improve things. Um, but yes, there's a long list. I think that many criticals would like write an entire book of things like, oh my God, like, no, like we, that's, we don't do that anymore. We need to do something different. I have a presentation called Mythbusters that has like online polls and um, some, some of the things that would show up would be like, oh, okay, this is definitely a point that we need to, to touch base on. Um, yeah, but that's, that's the point of trying to continue teaching. Right. And these things might change like in 10 years from now, there might be evidence that is like, Oh, nope, nope. It is actually good for that. So we can go back to using it again because (laughs) that's how medicine is. Um, evidence is constantly evolving and that's the point of trying to do research in veterinary medicine and reading it, like really understanding, um, not just reading an abstract, but learning how to read a paper and going to that primary literature and seeing really what is the evidence out there for this disease that I'm, that I'm treating at this point. Well, and also like just in research, you know, someone will send me a paper. Well, no, I don't do this because of this. And, and look at the research that just came out on this. What is your population size too? And what are the parameters? I feel often people forget, you know, that come from a scientific background, what goes into research and what to look for, because not all research is created equal. Like really take a look at the study that you're being presented with, whoever sends it to you and say, okay, am I going to put all my eggs in this basket? They did a study on seven dogs, you know, like just paying attention to that too. I think sometimes things get lost in interpretation. Obviously there's challenges to research, but making sure that what you're reading and what you're yeah, you know, digesting before you put it into practice is something that other people are supporting or is coming to light kind of thing too. Absolutely. And at, at many conferences, there there tends to be one lecture of someone going over how to read a journal article. I would highly recommend that people do that so they can learn how to interpret that information and know the difference between having a randomized blinded study versus just a case report is, is a big mm-hmm. difference. And as general practitioners, you can contribute to research. I think that many people forget, they, they leave academia, they graduate, and they're like, okay, well, these people that work here will be in charge of this forever. And they forget that a lot of the research that comes out of academia is it's a tertiary hospital. So they are going to see the sickest, worst patients there. Yes. And the ones that have money, mind you. 
Because if not, then we're not going to get in through the door. So that's not the entire population that exists out there. There's all those patients that are not as sick, but maybe have this problem that you are seeing as a general practitioner. That is a different population. So all of the research is going to be a little bit skewed towards what is being seen in academia or these tertiary hospitals, which may not be actually representative of the reality of what's happening. So if you are seeing something cool, if you're seeing something that you can't find in the literature, just make sure that you are documenting all your stuff. You have all those pictures. You you have stuff enough for, for a case report. And if you are concerned that you don't know how to write a case report, reach out to someone from academia and tell them like, hey, I have this real, really cool case. I've never written a paper before, but I want to do this because this is a, something that I think should be out there. They will say yes. 100%, I will. I promise you they will help you. Or, or they'll go through stuff and be like, actually, this has been written five times, or we need this other information. If we had had this, this would have been better. You can present this at an abstract in, in multiple conferences. There's a lot of other journals that, that you can just write a, a small article instead of writing like a whole research paper. So having general practitioners, and this includes nurses as well, because nurses also have several um, journals out there of contributing to that research makes a big difference because it's a different population than what we're seeing in academia. Yeah, and do you have favorite journals that you like as far as your go-to are concerned? Like that you like to read their articles more so than others? Well, obviously as a criticalist, JVAC, the Journal of Veterinary Emergency and Critical Care is is probably my, my go-to. Um, but I try to read a lot of um, JVIM as well and try to stay up to date with things like that. But in general, usually, honestly, what I do is if I, there's a topic that I'm interested in, I'll just Google Scholar it, the topic, and then just read based on that what I find. Obviously, going through some of the methods of the study and seeing if these are reasonable papers, if, if the study design was appropriate, should I trust these or not? And sometimes I still read them anyway just to say, when someone comes up to me, yeah, but that paper, I'm like, yep, I read it, but the, <laughs> the study design was this or not, or actually it was a good study, but the end is not that much for me to change my, my opinion. Um, so trying to read through those is great. Many conferences also have little summaries. So you'll go to like IVEX and they have an entire day where they will present all of the important articles of that year. So you mm. don't have to read all of them. You'll have a criticalist that already went through all of them, saw if these are good or bad studies, and can just give you the summary in five minutes of all of these articles there. So a lot of people go to those big ticket like lectures, um, but honestly, the way to go is to go to those lectures, which usually are like the entire morning of them talking about journal articles, because they'll give you the most up-to-date information. Um, go to the residents that are presenting their abstracts. They're giving you the brand new information that is out there. No one knows the resident. It's a no one in people's minds. But these people are doing the latest, newest studies. So go go listen to those abstracts. That's where you're really going to get the new innovative information. That is a golden nugget of information right there. You don't even think about the summaries and the abstracts. You, you do the whole deal and, and spend all day in lecture and all day in conference. I never even would have thought of that. That is perfect. <laughs> You think of all the information that you consume on top of what you've already consumed just by doing that. That's great. Absolutely. Um, so I want to switch gears for just a second um, because 
there's a, a hiccup that I've run into in the past before, and that is language barrier. And you're bilingual, and you also mm-hmm. are the mentorship director for Latinx Veterinary Medical Association. So I wanted to ask you kind of for, for practices that do not have multilingual or bilingual employees, when you have a, a, someone that comes in that is struggling, their patient obviously is either urgent or in an emergent situation, what would be your advice or your go-to as far as kind of helping to bridge that communication barrier that exists there? Yeah, so that um, I'm, I'm very grateful that I'm bilingual because it comes in to be so useful. Um, yeah. At least several times a week, I'm speaking in Spanish. And it makes such a difference for that client to be able to communicate in their original language and explain what are these clinical signs that they're seeing. Even if they do speak English, sometimes they'll just feel more comfortable speaking to you in their native tongue whether that's Spanish or any other language that that, that might be. So multilingualism in, in veterinary medicine is, is a huge deal. And it's difficult sometimes to find the people to make those translations. So one of the things that I've recommended in my hospital or my previous hospital, because I changed my job, is um, to have an ongoing list of the people that speak other languages in your practice. And that includes ASL, so sign language as well. If yes. there's someone there that, that can speak sign language, even if it's not that great, what are the list of those people that you have readily accessible at your own practice? So that would be step one, because sometimes people, obviously I'm, I'm Latinx, so people will assume that I speak Spanish, but a lot of people speak other languages and you would never know. So have an mm-hmm. ongoing list and knowing what other means of communication do you have so you can call them quickly and be like, hey, can you translate for me here? The other step is trying to ask them, like, do you have someone that can translate for you at home or through Zoom or on the phone? This one's a little bit trickier sometimes because I don't know always what they're translating on the other side if I don't know the language. So are they conveying this information in the appropriate way? Are they explaining it well? That can get a little bit tricky. And then contacting um local or online places that do translations. There's a lot of services that do this, even in human medicine, um, that you can just have those phone numbers available of someone that can translate that is trained in medicine so that they'll hopefully be able to relay this in a little bit of a better way. Now, the Latinx Veterinary Medical Association is um, working on several things. One of them is to try to have some small uh, medical Spanish courses um, and to have on their website some uh, translated common diseases, which might be very useful for for um, just English speaking veterinarians that maybe want to, um, I don't know, explain pancreatitis to someone and it's already kind of written out of what's going on or some tick and flea preventatives or whatever that might be of having like a one page summary in Spanish that you can just access and give that to your clients so that they understand a little bit better. But there are um, definitely different types of uh, translation services that are available that are much more knowledgeable in in um, medical terminology so that it makes it a little bit easier. So I would have those accessible of either whether that is local or there definitely are some international ones that you can easily access. Um, and to me personally, I think that that should be a service that every hospital should be able to offer. Um, it is not the patient's fault that you can't communicate with, with that client. So we need to have as much information as possible to do so. 
Yeah, that's really good advice. And I think that falls back on just preparedness, overall preparedness, because just because you're not seeing it on a daily basis doesn't mean it's not going to come up and you need to be prepared for it. But the, the last time or the, the, the um, the word I'm looking for. The last time you want to be caught with your pants down right, is in an emergency situation where you yeah. need to communicate. You need that information going back and forth because that owner that's bringing that animal in has all of the keys. You know, obviously you can read the signs and symptoms and know what's happening, but that information is so important. And yeah, I, I definitely agree from a comfort perspective as well. I mean, even for people that are bilingual or multilingual, especially in a state of stress, in a state, you know, an emergency situation, it can be a lot easier for them to, you know, take a breath and say things the way that they're going to say them, the way that they communicate them best to relay that information. Um, and having a local source is such a great idea for translation that understands medical terminology and can translate medical terminology too, because speaking in terms um, from a medical perspective is not the same. It's almost like an addition to the language um, to mm -hmm. incorporate medical terminology as well. So I feel oftentimes that doesn't always translate appropriately if that person isn't, um, you know, skilled in that department as far as that terminology is concerned. So that could be really helpful. Yeah. Good point. I mean, there's a, there's a big difference in when it comes to um, Latinx veterinarians. So there are very few. We only have around 5% of the veterinarians in the United States that are Latinx at this point. But we do oh. know that 60% of Hispanic homes in the United States have pets. So yes. that makes a big difference um, when it comes to them feeling um, recognized and seen in their veterinarian and someone that can understand not only their language, but potentially their, their culture. And this comes down to diversity and inclusion of really understanding who your client is, whether that is Latinx and this is race or potentially something like, for example, religion. Um, mm -hmm. If a Buddhist person comes in and they are completely against euthanasia, it is not my place to judge that, but to understand, okay, if this is a religion, religious reason, what can we do to make your pet the most comfortable then? I need to shift gears of now being very focused on palliative care, pain control, making sure that this client understands what are the things that we can and cannot do for, for this pet at this point. So making sure that you are open to other creative ways of treating that patient, making sure that you are respecting your client and their beliefs as much as you are to try to make this, this patient comfortable. Yeah. And I, um, I feel for both sides of that fence too. And so I always, I always think too, that, you know, diversity is such a beautiful thing. It'd be such a boring world if we were all the same. <laughs> um, but at the same time, I, I, I feel for the veterinarians that are so empathetic towards the patient's needs, because that's why we got into this, right? That's why everybody does what they do in this profession, despite the public opinion that it's all about, all about the money. Um, but also being comfortable enough to say, I'm not comfortable with this, or we need to discuss this further, or maybe I can just refer this to someone that I think can handle this situation a little bit better than I can. And that can be that communication with the emergency practice or with a specialty practice that can kind of take that, that burden off of the shoulders of the veterinarian as well, because I think oftentimes they're put in very, very uncomfortable positions. So, you know, as much as we want to be all inclusive and, and we're I think most vets are pretty accepting of the challenge to try to do the best they can for every unique individual out there. Sometimes it can be really hard for them to do what they feel from their perspective is ethically appropriate for the animal, for their patient. So having that, um, not that I want to give everyone an out, but also maybe understanding that you can refer out to if you need to, if you need someone else to handle that situation because you, you feel very uncomfortable that you're 
that your your opinion and your your moral compass is valued as well, and that there it might be a good path of divergence if need be. Absolutely, I think that that's very fair because we can have that discussion with the client of saying like, look, if you don't want to euthanize your pet's going to need to have twenty four seven analgesia. We are not equipped to do that, um, but this is what I need to refer you out for. Making sure that you also communicate with the clinician that you're referring to, so they understand the situation and they don't put that client again in the same situation of like, no, I'm not going to yeah. euthanize. This is what you need to do, so that we can again provide that best care for them. Um, right. Why are you making that, that recommendation think, when you might not otherwise? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. The other thing that I think is important is for, for everyone to start educating themselves a little bit more. So there's there's two courses that are actually veterinary related. Um, one is through the AVMA. It's called the Brave Space. Um, so it goes over all of diversity, equity, and inclusion. So it explains pronouns. It explains race. It, inc- it explains differences in uh, religious aspects and disabilities, etc. So it is a fantastic course. It is not very long um, for AVMA um, members. I believe it's something like either 50 or $70. So definitely worthwhile doing. And then there's another course through Purdue, uh, which is a diversity and inclusion certificate. Um, It's a little bit longer, but also very, very good. And it does involve at the end writing an an essay, um, but it's through the university. So uh, to me, it has a little bit more weight to it. But I think both of those things are something that uh, we we can't have blinders on at this point anymore. We we need to start educating ourselves more when it comes to diversity and inclusion. Uh, One, so that we are just better human beings and we work better Mm -hmm. together. But two, financially and as a business perspective, it makes sense for you to have that training in diversity and inclusion. Many of the clientele that you're going to be seeing is going to be diverse. So if you make them feel comfortable, if you make them feel welcomed, those people will go back to you and maybe not to another clinician that doesn't have that same respect or maybe not lack of respect, but just a little bit of ignorance of where they are coming from. Um, so it, it does make a difference. And you've seen it on, on all of these other international companies at this point that have made such a big point of talking about diversity and inclusion. Many of them, it's because it's the right thing to do, but it's also financially a good thing to include and incorporate into your business is making sure that you are being more open with them, making sure that, for example, simple things such as when you have that intake sheet, maybe put pronouns on there, simple things, making sure that you have maybe your pronouns written on your stethoscope or on your jacket or whatever that might be. So people feel a little bit more comfortable. Um, There's so many different tiny little things that you can make so that your clients feel more at home with you and want to come back to you. So that financially is going to help you. Yeah, that's a great idea. And I love that those two courses are available. I'm going to put the links to both of those. I'll pull them up and put those links directly in the show notes below so people can access those directly. I mean, 50 Excellent. to 70 bucks is, is fantastic. That's right in line with it. You know, it's not ridiculous at all. Yeah. So, and I, I think a lot of the problem is just simply ignorance, just not knowing. So knowing what to do, knowing, you know, having that extra step, it's just like learning anything else. You know, you're in your bubble, you know what you know, this is your practice, this is your field and anything else out is a new learned skill. So um, that's perfect. I'm going to put those both in the, in the show notes below. So thank you for that. All right. Well, I don't want to take up too much of your time, but I do want people to be able to find you and learn from you. Actually, I was really disappointed that it took me as long as it did to find your Instagram page because it is fantastic <laughs> and I love it. I flip through it all the time and read because I have to catch up on all the old stuff that I haven't seen. So Instagram is definitely a good place to find you. But as far as teaching goes, do you have any courses that are upcoming or ways that people can kind of tap into the information that you're putting out there? 
Yeah, so definitely my Instagram is where most people can find me. Um, I'm always happy to answer questions as well. Um, if anyone sends me a message, probably it's more likely that I'll answer through Instagram. It's linked through my Facebook, but not all the videos from Instagram go on to Facebook. So Instagram is where to go. Um, that being said, yes, I do a lot of presentations. So upcoming, I'm going to be the keynote speaker at Kansas City uh, Fetch DVM 360. Um, so I'm going to be talking about some emergency stuff there, but I'm also going to be talking uh, specifically about a lecture called fail your way to success and how many times I fell on my face before I made it and how that is a good thing um, I'm also going to be presented at an Atlantic Coast veterinary um, uh, conference and I'll be presenting at IVAX at the uh, I'll be the moderator for the panel of diversity and inclusion there as well excellent perfect that's a lot of good fun stuff to look forward to I'm gonna jump in on some of those as well for sure so, well, this has been packed full of really good information, and I think that everybody listening will get some value that they can really put to use in their own practice and help up their, their emergency game. So thank you so much for joining me today and lending us your knowledge and your expertise. And um, I'll be curious to see kind of all the future stuff that you have coming up, and I definitely encourage anyone out there that is interested in emergency or critical care and or both to, um, to follow you on Instagram and to keep an eye on what you're doing and what you're teaching, because I think it can be of great benefit to people that are really interested in that field. So all the best to you for the rest of the year. And, uh, I look forward to seeing what else you got coming up. Thank you so much. This was a blast to spend some time with you. We definitely talked on really interesting things. So thank you so much for having me. Anytime. This is great. We should do it again sometime. <laughs> Absolutely. Take care. <laughs>